Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about films. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave in my own personal experiences with the films that I talk about. I discuss the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. Today, I'll be talking about Chris Marker's 1962 sci-fi short film, La Jetée. This was a really important film in my life. In 2011, I got interested in art house cinema, and it was primarily because of La Jetée. So I will be talking about the film, why I love it so much, why I think it's important, and I hope that you will stick around and listen. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my patrons, Polina, Lindsay, Olivia, Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Jesse. Thank you all so much. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, telling your friends and followers about the podcast, or just sending an encouraging message to me. I am on Facebook at Her Head and Films. You can uh, contact me there, send me a message. You can also see my other social media accounts in the description of each episode. So this week's episode is about La Jetée. This is a short film from 1962, it's under 30 minutes, and it's directed by Chris Marker. Before I go and give you my analysis of the film, I want to talk about the director first, because he is an important figure in cinema. Chris Marker is really an elusive figure in cinema history. We are not sure where he was born, few photos of him exist. When he was asked for a photo of himself, he usually sent a picture of a cat because he loved cats and they do recur throughout his films. There's even a little uh, uh, scene with a cat in La Jetée. We do know that he was born in 1921 and he died in 2012. Chris Marker is not even his real name. So this is a person who is very much a mystery. This is a person who was not interested in being famous or being known. He wanted his films to be the main focus. He wanted his films to speak for him. And he was content to disappear into the background. He's almost a blank surface. And I think that makes him obviously even more interesting and fascinating to people. Though he was much of a mystery, his work especially his nonfiction, his documentaries, and his film essays, which he was really a pioneer of, have been profoundly influential and impactful because of their experimentation. And he really um, used so many forms. It's quite um, astounding how many forms he worked in. He was a writer before he even became a director. He was a photographer a traveler, and obviously a filmmaker. He was so many things. He even did a project on CD-ROM, 
which is very interesting. I think he was always interested in, in exploring different forms. Now, in my research about Marker, I knew about him before doing this episode, obviously, but had not done any really deep research. I was reading some articles on a website called Senses of Cinema, and they talk about how, um, along with Agnes Varda and Alain René, Marker is considered sort of as belonging to something called the Left Bank Group, which existed really at the same time as the French New Wave in the 1960s. But these groups are a bit different. And I, I would say that Agnes Varda often gets um, categorized with the New Wave. Um, so I'm not sure how strong these divisions are for film critics. But it did come up in the research. And I thought it was really interesting because I had never heard of the Left Bank group. But the Left Bank group is a bit of a more of a fluid category. And different critics will include different filmmakers in it. But most of the time, they do include Varda, Rene, and Marker. What distinguished the Left Bank group from the New Wave were a few things, and I think they're important, and I think they're worth talking about for a moment. First, the Left Bank group is much more literary, and they took their inspiration from literature. As I said before, Marker himself was a writer and a novelist before he became a filmmaker, and if you've seen some of his films, he does quite a few voiceover narrations on his films, and I think they have a literary quality. I would say that La Jete certainly has a literary quality to it, the subtitled version especially. René, Alain René, worked with writer Marguerite Duras on some of his films, including Hiroshima, Mon Amour. And Agnes Varda has some ideas about cinema and writing, and I plan to go into more of Varda and her work in the future, because I plan on doing an episode about Cleo from 5 to 7. And so when I do that episode, I will go much deeper into Varda. Second, the many of the new wave, um, Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, Eric Romay, Claude Chabrol, these filmmakers really began as critics before they became directors. They were critics at the Cahiers du Cinéma, which was a very prestigious film journal. While the, the directors of the Left Bank group, they started really as artists. Chris Marker was a writer. Agnes Varda was a photographer before she went into films. So their backgrounds are different as well. Um, and I think that's, I had never thought about that before, but it does, there is sort of a difference between the work of Renee Marker and Varda than what you would think of as the typical new wave. They are different, and their work is concerned with different topics and different ways of making films. So, I mean, I don't know how many of you out there who are listening are, like, really knowledgeable about film and French film and this stuff, but this is just things that came up in my research and that I thought was interesting. Um... And I just wanted to let those of you who are listening know about it. And third, the Left Bank group was a bit more interested in politics. 
And I would say that there are films by Chris Marker that have more of a political undertone to them. Varda as well, you know, Varda was interested in feminism. Some of her films deal with that and, and Renee as well. I mean, I would say Hiroshima Mana more definitely has a political dimension to it. So these directors have a bit more of a political interest than, say, the new wave besides Godard. I mean, Godard does seem really political to me. But Truffaut, I would not say Truffaut was political or Rome or Chabrol in terms of really obsessed with politics and things like that. But I'm not overly knowledgeable about the French New Wave or about French cinema. But this just is things that came up as I was researching. One example, I think, of some of the political aspects of Marker's work is a documentary called Le Jolie May. And this documentary was filmed in the cinema verite style that had just started to appear around that time. Uh, I'm not sure what year Le Jolie May was made. It was in the early 60s. It features interviews with common people on the streets um, of France during the period just after the end of the Algerian War. According to a New York Times obituary of Marker, it was while filming Le Jolie May that Marker started working on what would become one of his most influential and iconic films, the focus of this episode, La Jetée. So La Jetée is a unique film in Marker's career. It's one of his few fiction films, because he's mainly known for his film essays, his non-fiction films. Um, it's set in a post-apocalyptic Paris right after World War III. Survivors of this war are living underground. They need access to food, medicine, energy sources, and so they devise a way to travel in time using one man's memory. This man is unnamed. He is haunted so intensely by a memory um, of him being a child and witnessing the death of a man at Orly Airport in Paris. He saw a man die. He saw a man killed in front of him. And he also saw a woman who was with that man. And her face also haunts him. So this man has this very strong memory of um, really a moment of violence, but also this woman who was there. Um, the man is forced to undergo ex experiments that take him back in time to Paris before World War III and back to the woman that he cannot forget. It's a film about time, but more than anything, in my opinion, it's about memory it's about how certain memories define us, how they haunt us, how they seem more alive than the present moment, and how we are really always aching to return to another time. I'll talk about the film in depth, but first I want to talk about why I have dedicated an episode to this film and why this film means so much to me. There's a few things that you need to know about me and my life. First of all, I'm 28 years old. I was born in 1989. I grew up in a rural area of North Carolina in a small town. I grew up working class and poor. Uh, my family didn't have a lot of money. We got by. We survived. I never felt deprived, but I didn't have a lot of the things that kids my age had. 
I didn't have like the newest PlayStation and I didn't have all the technological gadgets that other kids had. And that includes a computer or a laptop. Um, on through the time that I graduated high school, I did not have a computer at home. I was actually really uh, strange because of that. <laughs> I often had to do high school homework and high school projects and essays and things like that at the library, either at my local library or the library at school. And I was basically like the only person in my class that had to do that. Other people had computers at home. So I was very divorced from the internet until around 2010, 2009 or 2010. So it's not really until I was 20 years old that I had a computer or had regular access to a computer. I tell you this because before 2010, the main way that I consumed cinema was through DVDs that I found at Blockbuster. Sometimes they would have sales like four for $20 when they were selling DVDs. And I relied on television. That was how I watched films. I watched Turner Classic Turner Classic Movies a lot, which is a channel here in the United States that shows classic films, like old Hollywood films 24-7 without commercials. So, you know, anything you can think of from the old Hollywood era. And sometimes they'll show modern stuff too. And they occasionally show European art house cinema. Because if you listen to my episode about The Passion of Joan of Arc, I talk about how the first time I really saw... Um, a saw a film that really moved me and awakened me to the power of cinema was through Turner Classic Movies one night when they were showing The Passion of Joan of Arc and that was before 2010. I took a film appreciation class in high school and that also exposed me to cinema but we watched things like Alfred Hitchcock, we watched Casablanca, we watched Singing in the Rain and Some Like It Hot and Billy Wilder and stuff like that. So that class in high school showed me, oh, you know, film can be more than just entertainment. The Passion of Joan of Arc shows me that film can be an art form. It can be very powerful. But up to 2009, 2010, I did not have steady access to art house cinema and really didn't know much about it. Um... I would watch foreign films when I could. Sometimes they would show at a local theater where I lived. But I did, the cinephilia had not fully started. I think The Passion of Joan of Arc really planted the seed and it was an essential part. But it didn't take until I had access to the internet and I had access to alternative means of consuming cinema besides a television or a local movie theater. The internet is the point at which I am able to fully start to explore cinema. And so in 2010, I started a Tumblr. And so that's when I started to go online. I met some people through Tumblr who were cinephiles. And I started to explore cinema more. And then 2011 came and I started to get more interested in films. And I don't know who it was. I don't know how I came to this film. But someone told me about La Jetée by Chris Marker. And so I thought, oh, okay. 
I'm, I'll watch this film. It looks interesting. I may have seen some film stills of it on social media or online. I watched La Jetée and my world changed. This was the film that made me very interested and made me fall in love with French cinema, with European art house cinema. So because of the internet, I was finally able to start exploring cinema more fully. At that time, the Criterion Collection was on Hulu. It's not anymore. It's on Filmstruck now. But in around that time, it was on Hulu. And I started to watch some of the films that were on there. And um, so La Jetée really is the gateway. It's the door. It's, I watched this film and I had never seen anything like it. Just like when I had seen The Passion of Joan of Arc a few years before, before the internet, when I was a teenager. It just, um, it made me feel alive. It made me feel, I'm struggling. See, this is always the hard part for me in talking about these films because there are no words. I mean, some of the most intense experiences of our lives cannot be put into words. And that's how I feel about La Jetée. Um, and of course, it was an important part of me discovering the Criterion Collection. Because if you're a cinephile, the Criterion Collection is it's your it's sacred right it's like what you worship because that's where all the great art house films are and um without la jetée i wouldn't have found ingmar bergman i wouldn't have found louis mal i wouldn't have found um roberto rosalini or sachajet ray or ozu or um Agnes Varda even. I had not watched Agnes Varda then. Or there's no Alain René for me without Chris Marker. He he begins everything for me. Because I see La Jetée and I'm like, well, I need to watch more French cinema. I need to watch more European art house cinema. Without Chris Marker, there's no Tarkovsky for me. There's no, what is it, Abbas Kuristami. I'm a huge Abbas Kiristami fan. So La Jetée is the beginning of everything. It gets me interested in art house cinema. And eventually I will go beyond Europe. And I do. And now I'm getting more interested in cinema outside of Europe. But that's another story. But um, this film is just, it's become part of my own personal mythology. When you look back in your life and you think about the moments that happened that lead to other moments, the, the seminal sort of the stepping stones, the ones where without them, you cannot be who you are today. La Jetée is that film for me. Um, and re-watching it for the podcast it's interesting because I watched it in 2017 because it is a film that I like to periodically revisit because I just think it's so perfect and it's so magnificent. Um, 
but rewatching it again for this podcast, um, it gave me such a, almost like high, like a cinema high. I don't know if you ever feel that, but it reminded me of that time in my life in 2011 when I was just deeply falling in love with these films and I felt like a whole new world had been opened up to me. I felt like, oh my God, I didn't know films could do this. I didn't know cinema could say this. I didn't know that it could explore these things. Um, I didn't know that it could make me feel this way. Um, and once I got that first hit of, of La Jetée, I needed more. It almost became like a drug. You know, I've got to watch Antonioni. I've got to watch, um, you know, I've got to watch all these different people. Um, I've got to watch Italian cinema. I've got to watch French cinema. I've got to watch Krzysztof Kieślowski, who is my favorite director ever, who's a Polish director. Because that year in 2011, I do believe I saw The Double Life of Veronique too, which I did an episode about in 2017. So it took me back to 2011. It took me back to those early years, 2011, 2012, when I was watching Ingmar Bergman and I was watching Krzysztof Kieślowski and I was watching Andrzej Tarkovsky and all these amazing, and Agnes Varda. And and, um, had I watched Chantal Ackerman yet? I don't think so. But, um... I was just exploring all these directors. It was so new and it was so pure. You know, I was just doing it because I wanted to. I was just losing myself in these films. And um, it's a really great memory. It's a really great thing for me to think about. I mean, 2011, I was also in college at the time. Um, I was in my second year of college studying literature and, and things like that. And it's just, I think about that time in my life and I, it was like this heady time because of cinema, because I was becoming a cinephile. I was becoming deeply attached to films and they were starting to consume me and they were starting to define my life more. And, um, when I look back over my life, some of my best memories Besides those I spent with, you know, my family and my parents and and things like that. Some of the best moments are, or the happiest moments, are the memories of me in a movie theater. You know, or me watching films. Like, those are memories that I really cherish. And it's hard to believe that without La Jetée, you know, I may not have, I may not have been introduced to the art house cinema that I love so much now and that really changed my life. And I'm so grateful to the internet um, because the internet really, I mean, before, before the internet, it was much harder to consume cinema if you didn't have a lot of money, if you didn't have an art house theater near you, which I didn't have. I was really completely dependent on like a Turner Classic Movies. I mean, that's what I was dependent on or DVDs that I came across out in the world. But with the internet and things like, you know, Netflix and Hulu, because I, I remember the days when Netflix had art house cinema on it, 
there was some Tarkovsky on Netflix. I know there was some Ingmar Bergman on Netflix. I saw The Hour of the Wolf on Netflix. I saw um, The Virgin Spring. So I remember those days when some of these streaming sites had a lot more classic art house cinema. And um, the internet gave me access to these directors in a way that I had never had before. And that changed my life too. So it's really, um, it's the confluence of two things. It's La Jetée and it's the internet. The internet allows me to explore cinema. It allows me to watch more films. It allows me to go deeper. And that is what I did not have before 2000. Uh, 10, 2009, when I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc in my living room. And I didn't really have any way to go deeper into cinema as I would have liked to. And so I'm really grateful for La Jete for that, for opening my eyes, for it was like a second awakening. You know, there's that first awakening with The Passion of Joan of Arc. And then there's that second awakening with La Jete. And I would say I even had a third awakening in 2017 when I discovered more of the work of Indian director Sachajit Ray and Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu. That was for me a third awakening because it took me beyond Europe and it took me into a world of cinema that exists beyond European art house cinema. So I'm just, I'm discovering as I go and with cinema, there's always more to find and there's always more to discover. But as I'm talking about La Jete later, I will, I think I'll be able to put more into words about why this film is so moving and why it matters so much to me. Because it is a haunting film. It is a beautiful film. It is a heartbreaking film. Um, it's innovative. Um, it's so many things. And if you have not seen it, I really feel that you must. And I'm going to go deeply into the film, not, you know, scene by scene, but I'm going to really go all in into this film uh, because I just think that's necessary, that I have a lot that I want to say about it. And so if you haven't seen it, you should. It's probably on YouTube, and I recommend the subtitled version, um, the French version, and um, I just can't wait to talk about this film, and just being able to watch it again was so satisfying, and I really felt like I was just kind of floating, that cinema was sort of like pulsing through my veins in some way, and just made me feel alive and electrified and like I had some kind of purpose or meaning because that's what this podcast makes me feel like at times is that I can watch this film and I can share the experience with you and I can share what it makes me feel and I can share what I think and that's a really powerful thing and it's really invaluable for my own life and so um I just can't wait to share you know all of my thoughts and emotions about this film. Before I go into the film, I want to share a story with you. Recently, my mom and I went to the park. There is a park near where we live. And it's really beautiful. I've actually never been to a park like this before. Um, there's a huge lake. 
Um, there's these beautiful gazebos that sort of float on the lake. There's a walking path where you can walk around the lake. There's ducks. Um, there's this big water spout in the middle of the lake. Um, and the, when my mom and I, uh, went to the park, it was just the perfect day. It was bright and sunny and beautiful and just the right temperature. It's February, but we had sort of a spring-like day. So it was this feeling of spring is coming that, um, that hopefully the winter is stored is starting to diminish and soon things will get warmer and there will be this blooming and this regeneration of life because that's always how spring makes me feel but it was just such a beautiful day beautiful big white clouds in the sky um th there was this wind too there was this breeze and so um so we weren't like burning, <laughs> burning up when we were there. And we just sat in the gazebo and I was watching the ducks and the water spout. And I was watching the water ripple in the breeze. I love to watch the way water moves. I love the sound of water. Often when I meditate or just when I want to be calmed or I want to feel a sense of peace, I will, um, listen to the sounds of water. There are different apps out there where you can listen to ambient uh, noises like that. And I really like to do that. I find it really calming. So my mom and I went to this park and it was just, it was perfect. It was heaven. Um, we both said that it was a really just beautiful experience for us. But at the same time, it was painful because my mom and I have been through a lot of loss in our lives. And um, I've talked about it numerous times on this podcast that um, my father died in 2006. And my grandmother died in 2007. And my uncle died in 2009. So three people in my life died within three years. And I was not even 20. Um by the time all of them were dead. My father died when I was 16. So I lost a father, a grandmother, and an uncle. My mother lost her husband, her mother, and her brother. So these were devastating losses, and they really shattered us in so many ways. And we have just struggled. It's been 12 years but it did something to us and it changed us forever and it really broke us in a lot of ways, but it also made us closer because we went through those losses together and all we had were each other and we are very, very close, extremely close. We are really dependent on each other and our lives are one another. I mean, she is everything to me. She is my purpose. She is my meaning. Um, I call her my soulmate and the love of my life. That is how close we are. Um, I live with her. We, you know, I love and adore my mother and, um, but we also hurt a lot and we have a lot of pain in us. And when we went to the park, 
it was interesting because we were both thinking the same thing that the way that that this lake smelled there's just this smell to it it's this smell to water i guess and the smell of the wooden gazebo it reminded us of the lake that we used to go to when i was a child in my childhood we used to go to this place in north carolina and it was like it was a really huge lake uh, you know and we used to go there during the summers and um there was like this this pier made of wood obviously and so the smell of this park was like the exact same smell of this lake that we used to go to and i remember it from my childhood and obviously my mother remembers it too me my mom my dad we would go to the lake um extended family and relatives would go to the lake um we'd go to the arcade there was like an arcade nearby there was a dairy queen there was a photo booth we'd play skee ball you know it's all kinds of stuff it's like these really really intense beautiful memories of my life and i sat there in that gazebo that day that we went to the park and i was just crying and my mom was crying um because we remembered that time in our life when we were whole and we were together with my father she had her mother she had her brother um i had my father my grandmother um we remembered this wholeness we remembered this beauty in our life and i and those memories haunt me those memories stay with me of the lake of the water the smells the happiness you know i still can see my dad um there i have photos of me and him on the the shore of the lake it had sand and i'm like really young i'm probably like 30 and i'm I'm, and i'm in my little bathing suit and, and me and him are sitting there on the sand together and i remember at his funeral um we have this bulletin board where we could put photos of him and that was one of the photos that we put up on the board was me and him at the lake and this is hard um and one of my favorite photos that i have of him is um of him on a float on the lake and he looks so happy and he's so alive and he looked so free and um he was he was really young and it might have been before i was even born he looks young my mom probably took the photo of him and he's just laying on this float and there's all this water that he's on i love that picture of him it's probably my favorite picture of him so we went to this park you know and just the smell of this park brought up all these memories it brought up this whole other life that if i had the choice i'd probably go back to if i could and live in it again and these are the memories that i carry with me and that haunt me and that are more real to me than my real life now my present life that doesn't 
contain him and doesn't include him and doesn't include all those people who are gone and who are dead. And so I'm living in the aftermath and that's hard and that's heartbreaking in many ways. And I wanted to share this because I think it's an example of the way that memory um, really covers our life. That memory, what is the word? There's never a perfect word for these things. But the way memory really is our life. That all we have at the end of the day are our memories. That the present is always tainted, I guess, or contaminated by the past. That you're, you, there's never a pure present. You're always both in the present and in the past. Because you can see anything or hear anything or smell anything and it will take you back to those memories and it will take you back to those moments in your life. And there are memories that are so vivid that you can never escape them and you can never um, stop being haunted by them. And with La Jetée, I see that. For me, La Jetée is about memory. It's about a man living in the aftermath of a huge catastrophe, which is World War III. I live in the aftermath of a huge catastrophe, which is the death of my father. This is about a man aching for the life before that catastrophe. I ache for my life before my catastrophe. This is about a man who holds on and clings to this one particular memory of that man at the airport dying, but also of the woman who's also at the airport watching that man die. But he holds on to the beauty of this woman. He holds on to whatever she represents to him, which is the life before this, this war destroyed everything. This before the fall, right? That's what she represents in many ways. And that's what so many of our memories can be, is that it, memories, we always remember things from the good times in our life. And so this is a film that's about nostalgia as well, you know, and the aching that goes into being a human being and wanting to go back to other times in your life that were happier, that were more beautiful, and you can never fully rid yourself of those memories, ever. Unless you get amnesia, or something else happens. Your memories are always with you, and they are inescapable. And they can be very painful. It can be hard to live in the present moment, as I said, without thinking about the past, without being reminded of the past. How do you hold these two things at the same time? Because that's what you have to do when you live after a loss or when you live after something traumatic or just if you live in any capacity, you know, and you miss your childhood or you miss being younger, or you miss whatever, you miss the person that you used to love and your relationship ended or they died. You miss things as a human being 
you ache for things and yearn for things. So how do you hold the past and the present together at once? How do you not give power to one of them? Because you're either going to be, some people can be so focused on the present that they just cannot allow anything else into them because they can't cope with it. You know, they have to be totally in the moment. But then there are other people like me who can live too deeply in the past. And I would argue that the man in La Jetée lives very deeply in the past. That the reason he is chosen for this experiment is because he has such an intense memory and he is so deeply haunted by it that they want to harness that energy really and harness that memory that he has. It's like he can't live in the present because he's trapped in the past in a way and nothing can ever live up to the past. And that's kind of how I am, you know, that I'd rather be in the past (laughs) because my life was better at that time. And so the struggle for me has always been how to live in the now how to live in the now while also honoring what I had in the past and honoring those memories and honoring who he was and how he shaped me. But it can be very difficult to hold those two things at the same time. And um, it's like I can't even go to the park (laughs) without my grief being there with me. You know, the grief is so present. And I have to just live through it. I just have to cope with it in some way. And I mainly did that through crying (laughs) in the gazebo at the park with my mom. She was crying too because we were talking about him and just talking about how he would have loved this park and, you know, and all those memories that we had. So it was a comfort that we had each other in that moment and we could support each other. Um... But both of us are trying to navigate a world absent of him and what that means. And always remembering the time with him and wanting to be in that time. So how do you live now when you only want to be in the past? But you can't be in the past. It's gone. And yet you have these memories. And so for me, memory is always really mysterious and really strange Like, what are these things? Like, what are memories? Um, I don't know all the research out there about them, you know, but memory is just such a fluid, unstable thing. And we never know why we remember certain things and why we don't remember other things. Why does he remember this man dying at the Orly Airport in Paris? Why is this the only thing he remembers? Obviously, it was a traumatic thing to see, But why that memory of all the millions of others that he could have remembered? We don't know. And we don't know why we ourselves remember certain things and not others. And so what is what will be woven throughout my review of the film is memory, is how this film addresses memory. And I think what it's trying to say about it, I don't know if I have an answer, but it's for me, memory is a huge part of the film. And it is something that I want to explore. But I did want to share that story because it's so interesting that I watch La Jetée. I'm preparing to do this episode. And then me and my mom go to this park. And it is this profoundly intense moment. 
in which memory is flooding, memory is pouring back into my life and flooding me, you know, and almost drowning me in the present moment and, um, drowning me in pain, but also drowning me in pleasure because that's what memory can be. It can be painful to remember certain things in your life, but it can also be pleasurable if you are remembering comforting or beautiful moments of your life when you're remembering your dead father for instance and so he feels alive to you and he feels real to you again or if you have dreams that are sort of based on your memories that can be a pleasurable thing that can be something very beautiful and you can feel like you're sort of recapturing the past in some way and so I think it was a very interesting coincidence that I'm watching La Jetée and then I have this very overwhelming experience of memory that really kind of corresponds in some ways to what's happening in La Jetée of a man being haunted by a particular memory in his life, just as I am often haunted by my memories. Is La Jetée about other things? Yeah. It's really a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Um, Chris Marker saw Vertigo 19 times. Vertigo came out a few years before La Jetée in the night, in like 1958 or 59, I think. The late 50s. And he sees it 19 times. And he himself said that it was sort of a remake or another way to explore Vertigo. I don't really want to talk about the connections to Vertigo. That probably interests some people, some critics, some cinephiles. I don't revere Vertigo the way a lot of other people do. I'm not saying I don't like the film. It just is not a film I want to watch 19 times. It doesn't hit me that way. And so another person could tell you all about the similarities between Vertigo and La Jetée and what's happening there. I would rather focus on themes that are in the film that resonate with me and that I think go beyond Vertigo, obviously. And I'd rather talk about other aspects of the film, and I would just rather do that. But I did want to mention that, that Vertigo was very important to Chris Marker and that it is an important part of this film. But it's not one that personally interests me and that I want to go into. I want to talk about memory. I want to talk about time. I want to talk about death. I want to talk about haunting. I want to talk about other things. And that's what I intend to do. Now I want to go very deeply into the film and give you my thoughts and analyses as I watched it, the things that I thought about, the things that occurred to me, and so I just want to go chronologically through the film, talk about different scenes, talk about different plot points, so obviously spoilers, (laughs) you should know by now that sometimes I really want to talk deeply about these films. And something that has always really impressed me about La Jetée is how it's short. You know, it's less than 30 minutes. It's around 28 minutes, I think. And it packs so much into it. 
by the time you finish watching it, you really feel like you've watched a feature film. That is what it felt like to me. You feel like you've just gone through this intense journey. I couldn't, I can't imagine it being any longer. I can't imagine it being any shorter. It is perfect the way it is. And I just want to make, um, make a note about something. I tried to watch this film on Filmstruck. I want to say that when I watched it in 2017 on Filmstruck, I think that's where I watched it, that it was the French version with English subtitles. This time around, when I tried to watch it on Filmstruck, it's the English version. The voiceover narration is in English, and there are not French, there are no subtitles. It's English dubbed, basically. I can't say which is, I guess, the pure version. I don't know if the original version, I would think it was in French. I don't know if Chris Marker approved an English version, you know, or English voiceover. I don't know, but the version I watched in 2011 was in French with English subtitles. And I cannot watch English dubbed films. I refuse. I prefer to watch a film the way it was intended. I want to hear the language, whatever that may be, whether it's Italian or French or Swedish or whatever language it might be. I think it's really important to hear other languages, to hear the rhythm and the music and the musicality of it the cadence of it. I love hearing other languages. I absolutely love it. I love hearing Portuguese. I love hearing Spanish. You know, I love hearing Japanese. I love languages. I love it. I wish I could learn them, but I can't. So I would encourage you, if you do watch La Jete, to watch the French version. And in general, I would encourage you, especially when it comes to art house cinema and classic art house cinema, to seek out the original versions of these films with English subtitles. That is sort of essential to me, really. I think when you get something that is dubbed in English, I think it's disrespectful to the actors at times, because part of acting is your voice you know, and, and to not hear the actor's voice really bothers me. Um, I just think it messes things up. I'm sure there are reasons some people would prefer English dubbing. Obviously, if you have vision issues and you can't read subtitles, I totally understand that. That's not what I'm railing about. I'm railing about people who could perfectly read subtitles. You know, it's not an issue for them necessarily, and they're watching the English dubbed version. If you have a choice and you don't have any kind of disability and you don't, you know, and subtitles are not a big deal, I would always recommend watching the original version with the actual language that the film was made in. I just think that's a more, I just think it's a better experience for you as a, as a film goer, you know, I have a big problem with English dubbed films. Like, I just, I will not watch it. So what I did, um, I didn't watch it on Filmstruck. I went and watched it on YouTube <laughs> with English subtitles because that's what I prefer. I want to hear the French because the film is set in France. It's set in Paris. So I want to hear that. 
I want to hear that language. I want to be in France in some way with this film. So I would, I would recommend that, you know, I don't know why Filmstruck only has the English version right now and is not offering the French version. I didn't even get a choice, uh, but I was really disappointed and really against it. And I refused to watch it in English. I only knew it in French and I'm going to watch it in French. You know, I'm not usually a stickler or a purist about certain things, but that for me bothers me. I really do not like English dub. I remember when I was in high school, we watched Life is Beautiful, which is an Italian film, and it was dubbed in English, and I still remember that. <laughs> like, oh my God, we watched an English dubbed version of Life is Beautiful. Yeah, it was crazy. The film set in Italy, I want to hear Italian. That's just how I feel about it. But, um... But this film is extraordinary. It's less than 30 minutes, and yet it compresses and packs in so much. And its brevity is obviously its strength. But La Jete, more than anything, I think, showed me, and maybe why I fall, fell in love with it, just it showed me that films could explore these huge subjects. This is a huge, small film, in a way. It's about huge subjects and huge um issues you know we have a post-apocalyptic story we have love we have time travel it's considered like a sci-fi film which i rarely watch i'm not into science fiction at all i don't read science fiction literature i don't watch science fiction films um it's not that i'm against it or anything um it's just not what interests me it's not what compels me personally but a lot of people do love sci-fi so if you are a sci-fi fan possibly you would and maybe you don't think of yourself as as a consumer of art house cinema or anything like that um although i'm not sure why you'll be listening to this episode um <laughs> if you don't love cinema but say you have a friend maybe who's into science fiction things but they're never really into to cinema this could be a film to recommend to them that they would actually probably really like. So let's talk about the film. It's about so much. It's about the way an image or a memory can haunt us. It's about a love story, really, between the man and this woman um, that he time travels to. It's visually innovative. It is comprised only of still photographs for the most part. There's actually a book version of the film. Um, it's I don't know how much it is, but it's a book, and it I think it has all the photographs that are from the film. And I've always wanted to own that book. Always. I probably never will. It's kind of expensive for me. But it is one of those books I'd always, I've always wanted to have. Um, it's a film about time, memory, death, you know, such major subjects. And I want to talk about rewatching the film and how as soon as the music started to play in the film, because there's this opera music in it, I felt so moved. And I really thought a lot about how so much began with this film. 
you know, and it just, this film has really marked me, no pun intended, maybe I do intend a pun, <laughs> but, um, and the character himself in the film is, we are told, quote, marked by an image from his childhood, unquote. So this is a film, I think, that marks you. I think it's so um, monumental in a way. I think if you talked to a lot of filmmakers, they would mention this film. I think it is a revered film. I think I have no doubt that I am not the only person for whom La Jetée is the film that got them into art house cinema or helped them become a cinephile. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that had a huge, that the passion of Joan of Arc had a huge impact on, which I talked about last week. Um, I would imagine that La Jetée is a formative film in a lot of people's lives when it comes to, to falling in love with cinema. And I just want to note something really fascinating about this, this film. It has this huge life. So many people love it. And there's actually a bar in Japan. I think it's called La Jetée. Or it's called... Je yeah, let me check. Um, and it has pictures from the film in it. That is how much the people love the film. Let me see. I have a quote. So Chris Dark is a writer and he wrote a book for BFI film classics about La Jetée. It's called La Jetée and it's Chris Dark. Um, Dark, his last name has an E on the end of it. Um, and he says, quote, not that there isn't something eminently cult-like about the admiration it inspires, the best expression of which must be the tiny one-room bar named in its honor in the Shinjuku district district of Tokyo, where people come to drink beneath images from the film, and which Mark, and which Marker stated was worth more to him than any number of Oscars. Unquote. So this film has a huge life, and there's even this little tiny bar in Japan where people go and have a drink and they're surrounded by images of La Jetée. And that sounds like my dream bar. I mean, I don't even go to bars, but I would go to that one just to see the steel images and all of that. So the film is made up of steel photographs, which you would think would maybe be gimmicky or maybe would be very static and not very interesting. But um, it actually is. He combines those images with, at times, atmospheric sound or what what it's also called diegetic sound. Like, for instance, when the man is at the, the airport, um, when he's remembering himself as a child at the Orly Airport, seeing this man get killed. We actually hear jet engines. So he combines that diegetic sound with non-diegetic sound. And the non-diegetic sound would be the score that is in the film. There's opera music primarily. Um, so um, the opera music, I think, brings um, an intensity to the film. Because this is a very serious film. It's taking place in a post-apocalyptic world. And that music, I think, really stirs the soul. 
and i think this sound really brings those images to life you know to hear that the sound of the jet engine and, and stuff like that it, it really it it imbues the film with a lot of life so he's not just haunted by the man's death at the airport he's also haunted by the woman's face who's also there at that airport and witnesses that man's death as well and shortly after this incident at orly airport where the man is killed um, paris is destroyed during world war three after um, that we see images of ruins of buildings reduced to rubble and of course, what comes to mind is World War II. World War II ended in 1945. So this film is released less than 20 years after the end of World War II. And as we know, there was immense destruction in Europe. Buildings were leveled, places were reduced to rubble. And so I felt like these images were kind of reminiscent of that. And I just think it's interesting that he's making a film about a post-apocalyptic world a world war three when they've just had world war two less than 20 years before i would imagine that world war two was continuing to haunt the psyche of um of the french people uh, and of europeans you know i would imagine that and these images of ruins reminded me of the fragility of life of how fleeting things are, but also humanity's capacity to destroy itself. You know, look at what they just did in World War II. You know, these buildings that were destroyed, millions upon millions of people were killed. You know, um, it really is a reminder of how fragile we are, how there's so much beyond our control that we have no power over. But it's interesting that what does manage to survive all this destruction is not only the man himself, but one man's memory. You know, that this particular memory has this stubborn life and continues to live on inside of him. So in my synopsis earlier, I said that, you know, the survivors of this World War III, they go and they live underground because the world has become uninhabitable due to radioactivity or radiation. To me, this sort of suggested possibly a nuclear war. And as we know, World War II ends because of the United States dropping two atomic bombs, on one on Hiroshima and one on Nagasaki. And it's also important to note, I think, that Alain René um, was also looking at you know nuclear warfare and the trauma and the damage that it did um through his film Hiroshima Mon Amour, which I did do an episode about. Um and so this suggestion I think of nuclear war of humanity wiped out by almost like a nuclear holocaust, I think it's really relevant to the times that we live in now in 2018, when we have a really unstable, dangerous man who is president of the United States and, you know, Donald Trump and his rhetoric around nuclear war, his nonchalance about nuclear weapons and his antagonism of North Korea and um, what's happening with that. I mean, just a few months ago, there was 
this missile uh, warning that went out in Hawaii and people thought it was real. People were putting their children into like sewers to protect them. It was terrifying and it happened for like 30 minutes. People thought a nuclear missile was coming for Hawaii and of course it was just a drill. It was false. You know, nothing was happening, but I think it indicates to us how we are all on edge about it. How it is very scary that North Korea is pursuing nuclear weapons. At the same time, I don't think you can talk about that without talking about the context and their relationship with the United States and what we did to to North Korea during the Korean War. And um, obviously they're terrified of us and they are terrified of us invading them or or something like that. Um, this doesn't come out of a vacuum, obviously. But with that rhetoric about nuclear warfare, nuclear weapons, I think a lot of us are on edge about it and worried about it. And obviously, you know, World War II starts all of that, you know, with the dropping of the atomic bombs. But in La Jetée, you know, this nuclear holocaust that seems to have happened, it it had more relevance to me, obviously, than it did in 2011, when this nuclear rhetoric and, and this possible nuclear warfare was not center stage the way it is now with North Korea. So certain survivors in this underground realm are held as prisoners and they are experimented on. Because of the state of the world, the survivors of this um, World War Three need to travel in time. They need to get access to food and medicine and sources of energy, we are told. Um, they want our main character because of his intense memories. They are able to spy on the prisoner's dreams, and so they know that he has this particular memory in his head that haunts him. And um, I'm taking a quote from the film, quote, if they were able to conceive or dream another time, perhaps they would be able to live in it, unquote. And I think this is so interesting, this idea, and there's a quote later on in the film too about this, but I feel like Marker is really looking at memory as like something you could inhabit. It's almost like a house or a home. Um, it's almost like you could conjure specific moments and experience them again. And, um, later on he'll talk about memory as like a museum. And I'm just really fascinated by this idea of memory as almost like a space that you can live in again. And that's really what they're doing through, through the time travel is that, they're seeing memory as malleable, I guess, and as something that you can travel back to. You know, it, it's something tangible, a memory. Um, it is this tangible world, whereas I think, obviously, in our everyday lives, memory is very abstract. You can have memories of places that no longer exist, about a building that's been torn down or, or whatever, you know. This thing no longer exists except inside of you. And you become, I think our bodies or our minds become the museum, you know. And we have all these these um, 
artifacts, artifacts and remnants that are still inside of us and that we sort of create a home for. So they want to harness the man's memory and they want to travel back to the past. They hook the man up to these wires. We hear like the sound of a heartbeat. That's another sound that Marker uses a lot in this film, which really sort of, I don't know, sound of a heartbeat is always really destabilizing to me. It's like, I think it's this reminder of the body, this reminder of the, the fragility, the temporary nature of the body. Um, we see images of him in pain. Um, it's obviously very painful for him what they're doing to his body. But he does go back in time. And this sequence is really fascinating to me. He sees life before World War III. Because obviously he's going back, you know, many, many years. He th He just sees these ordinary things like a child, a room, a cat, birds. And you realize how much you take these things for granted. That here he is living in this underground world. They're living like in the underground places of Paris or whatever. And um, you just think, yeah, if you were living in that kind of world, you would miss a cat. You would miss a, a child. He even mentions graves. Um, or just a room with a bed in it. Just birds. You think of all the things that they are now deprived of in their underground world. And this is the quote, other images pour out and mix in a museum that is perhaps his memory, unquote. The memory, memory as a museum, like I'm just fascinated by that metaphor. And I think also you see the literary quality of this narration. You are reminded that Marker was a novelist and a writer and a, like, I think even a poet before he became a director. There is that literary quality. And what I even love about subtitles, and this connects to what I was saying earlier, what I like about subtitles is that they turn the film into something literary, something that you have to read. You're in a way reading the film. I like that. I'm actually very influenced by literature. Literature was my first passion in life. I consider myself a writer. I consider myself sort of a literary person. So I don't think it's any surprise that I am drawn to the work of Marker and Renee and Varda in particular, this left bank group, um, because of the literary quality of their work and the literary inspiration um, that they take, you know, in their work. And um, I mean, think about that a museum that is perhaps his memory you know, these are beautiful words, beautiful language, and Marker knew how to use language. And you, the film is not complete without the language when it comes to Marker. The images are not enough. The images are powerful. I love the images, but I also love the language that accompanies them. I love that literary quality in Marker's work. And when I watched La Jete last year in 2017, I actually wrote about this idea of memory as a museum. I just wrote it on my Tumblr or whatever. I wrote, quote, I like this metaphor of the museum, all the memories arranged in different ways, there to be gazed at and inspected, objects outside of time, even as they are attached to a specific place in time. I also like the idea of memory as a scar, 
we live so many moments and can't possibly remember them all what makes one last and not another why is the process by which the scar is made what is the process by which the scar is made and why memory is always mysterious unquote. this what i was talking about about a scar was that there's this other quote in the film that goes nothing distinguishes memories from ordinary moments only later do they become memorable by the scars they leave unquote. and so these two things in the film have always fascinated me memory as a museum and memory as a scar and we don't understand the process by which certain memories stay with us and wound us and leave a mark on us and other memories that don't it's a mysterious process i'm not sure if it's knowable i'm not sure what the research shows about this because some things you can remember yes they might be tied to trauma you know, he as a child remembers the airport incident, the man being killed, because it's violent and it's traumatic. And obviously that would stay with you. But then there are other moments in our lives that are not traumatic, that are just very random, you know, and you don't know why you remember them. And you just don't. Like what I was talking about, like when, with the lake that I used to go to in the summertime, you know, with my parents, I have certain memories of that. And I don't know why I remember them. And I don't know why I've forgotten other things about that lake and about those summers. I mean, so little is left of it. So, so few memories remain of it because I was so young at times, but I've, I'm just fascinated by memory because I'm someone that is very attached to memories, who is very nostalgic, who is very attached to the past. And obviously this character is profoundly nostalgic. You know, he wants to go back to his childhood. He wants to go back to this other time before this war, before this apocalyptic thing that happened, before this catastrophe. So he goes back into the past as I said, he sees these images like a child, a cat. He sees graves. You know, he just sees ordinary things that he has now been deprived of um, because he's living underground, you know. So now he is physically in the past. He sees the woman from the airport, the woman whose face has haunted him for all these years. Um, he and the woman walk around they're really together in the moment and she is obviously in love with him and he's in love with her and they don't really explain why they're in love with each other but they just are it's not really explained you know but um with the film you just kind of go along with it like she likes him and they are in love with each other they're together in the moment there is only them you know and um, they go to this garden and she sees a necklace that he actually wore in the war that happens in the future, in the World War Three that she doesn't know about. So here is this sign, this sort of ominous, um, portentous um, sign of what is to come. Um, really, he's a character. He knows what is to come, but no one else does. 
And in this way, he's a very interesting figure, I think, because he has both memory and pre-knowledge. He knows both past and future when he is in this place with this woman. So he knows what is to come and he is living his past again in a way. But if, but he's also inhabiting the present, which would be the underground, would be the underground where his body is being experimented on. So he's this figure who's actually inhabiting like multiple dimensions and multiple multiple forms of time. He's in the past. He knows about the future. He knows about the present. It's mind-boggling I think it's sort of almost more than the mind can comprehend that's why I have trouble with sci-fi and science fiction I don't think I'm smart enough for it because I don't know much about the stuff but it's I think it's looking at time in this really complex layered multi-dimensional way he's able to to re-experience the past the whole time knowing that it ends. I think this intensifies those moments and those images. He knows how fleeting they are. And part of what's so powerful about this being composed of still images and, you know, photography really, um, is that I think for a lot of us, that is the way memory works for us is that we don't necessarily see movement in our memories. We don't necessarily see that. We see flashes of still images. And I'm it's interesting because I'm thinking about my review of The Passion of Joan of Arc. And at one time I talked about how there are these moments when Falconetti um the actress playing Joan of Arc, how she will sometimes be frozen in these poses. And the film is made up of close-ups pretty much. And she will look like a photograph more than a film. She'll just be frozen in these different poses and it reminds me of still photographs. And so I'm sort of thinking of that now as I think about La Jetée, which is completely composed of photographs. But I think using the photographs is actually really a genius technique. It's not gimmicky at all, because first of all, the images are gorgeous. They're beautifully composed. Um, he, he was a great photographer, I think. They're evocative. They are memorable. You know, you do not forget these images and they become part of your own memories. But I think the film itself uses the texture of memory, that memory it's, itself feels like a photograph or a still image. I I wouldn't say my memories are kinetic or that there's a lot of movement in my memories. They do tend to be stills. They tend to be like photos. And so I think that that is an important part of the film is those still photographs. And they really and it's really capturing, I think, the process of memory. But I want to return to how him knowing what the future is going to be actually intensifies his experiences with her 
you know, because he knows how fleeting all this is. And I think that makes those moments more beautiful. There is something about this film, like as you're watching the film, there is a melancholy and a sadness about it because you're seeing these two people who can't really be together, whose time together is fleeting and will not last. You know what's to come. You know that World War Three is on the horizon. And so as you're watching the film and seeing the images, you're getting this sense of like, I don't know. It's almost like you're looking at a photo album. You know, looking at the stills, looking at the photographs, it's almost like a photo album. You're getting images of a time that is already gone, of a vanished time. Um, and you know that it's going to be completely destroyed. That it is on the precipice of destruction. Um, but it makes those moments that he has with her so beautiful and yet bittersweet, obviously bittersweet. I mean, at one time she falls asleep in the sun and it's just her face in the sun. And, um, it's so beautiful. He just stares at her face. He stares at the way her skin glows, how peaceful she looks. And the whole time he knows that she's dead that she will die. She is already dead because she didn't survive World War III. He knows that while he's looking at her. Like, that is why I think this film is like a gut punch. I think that's why it's so moving is because he knows that she is already dead. But here he is right beside of her watching her sleep. I don't even know how to put that into words, how haunting that is, and yet how much that mirrors the life that we live as human beings, and how that mirrors the human condition, that we know all of this is evanescent, that all of this is ephemeral, that it's not going to last, that we will all die. We know that as we live. We don't know the why and the how the way he does, but we know it in our bones. And we mourn it and we grieve it, you know, and we try to cope with that knowledge, but it's painful. So he gets to live in the past again, but he can't do it purely. He can't live in it without the knowledge of the death and destruction on the horizon. Everything he sees is imbued with his own death. So he re-enters the past, but he can never return to who he was before. He has been changed by what he survived, by what has traumatized him, which was World War III. And it's interesting because we often wish we could go back in time. You know, I wish that all the time. I wish I could go back to when I was 10, when I was 12, to whatever particular moment with my father. But we never take that into consideration that even if we did go back, we can never truly be who we were back then because we've already known now. We've already known the grief and the pain and it has changed us. We can never be restored 
to that unscathed, unscarred, untraumatized version of ourselves. Even if we could go back into the past, we would be carrying who we are now with us. We can never unsee or unknow what we have known and what we have seen. And neither <clears throat> and neither can he. So he does tell her that he's from the future. I'm not sure how much he tells her. But she believes him. She doesn't think that he's totally insane. They walk around some more. They just love being together. They just love walking. It's This is a very simple film in some ways. It's complicated sort of with the narrative and um, and the World War Three and the apocalypse and the time travel. But I think at its heart, it's a love story. I think at its heart, it's about these two people who have connected to one another. But he's taken out of the past and he gets brought back to the present in the underground. Which is, I think, sort of a memory that we can, is a reminder that we can never really stay in our memories. He goes in and out of the past, but he can never stay in the past. He always has to come back to the present, but he does keep going back. He goes, he goes and sees her more. She calls him her ghost. Um, again, we don't know how much he told her. We don't know how much she knows about what is to come. We don't know that. And then there's a really extraordinary scene in the film where she's in bed. She's sleeping, probably dreaming of something. And um she's like in her in the covers and stuff and it's just such a simple image. But for a few seconds she moves. Her eyes blink and she comes alive. It's this really exhilarating moment where the whole time you've been watching still photographs and yet it doesn't feel gimmicky. It doesn't feel, um, you know, strange or anything like that. Um, and then all of a sudden you have her with her eyes blinking. It's the only movement in the entire film. And it's very extraordinary to watch it because when you watch it for that first time, you're not expecting it at all. And, um, I think it's one of those things that you are reminded of the possibilities of cinema. And I think you really love Marker's playfulness and his experimentation and his willingness to take risks, to not follow the rules, to do cinema the way he wants to do it. And I think that made him one of the more interesting directors um, that we've ever had. I haven't watched a lot of his films, but I would like to explore more of them. Um, but that moment when her eyes move and, and she's in movement, it's just so special. Another fascinating scene in this film is the one where they seem to go to like this natural history museum where there's like these specimens of like prehistoric animals. We see dinosaur bones. Um, 
hippos, elephants, you know, frozen in time, much like the characters in the film are frozen in time through these still photographs. Um, they smile, they laugh as they look at the specimens and go um, around the museum. And Joanna Hogg um, talks about this scene in an article for The Guardian. And um, let me see what the title of that article is. It was done for The Guardian. Thrilling and prophetic, why filmmaker Chris Marker's radical images influenced so many artists. So it's an article in The Guardian about how influential Marker was. And so they talked to British filmmaker Joanna Hogg, who I really like a lot. I really love her film, Unrelated. And she she does really interesting work. And um, so this is what she says about that scene where they're in the museum. And I really love this quote. Quote, one of the things I find so seductive about Marker's films is the sense of nostalgia that permeates much of his work, a tone of reminiscence, as if you, the viewer, had a shared history with him. At the same time, one is never allowed to forget the constructed nature of memory. This is perfectly illustrated in the marvelous sequence in La Jetée, when the time traveler and the woman visit a museum of natural history. An enchanted afternoon in an artificial Eden. In these frozen moments of happiness, it becomes possible to forget that some of the animals which, with which they cavort are already extinct, at the same time as the distinction between the living and the dead is temporarily removed. Unquote. First of all, I love hearing other people's thoughts about La, La Jetée, because I just think it's really interesting. I'm always... Uh, fascinated by how films can impact us in different ways and you know we could all watch La, La Jetée and then other you know we could all pick certain scenes that stand out to us that move us that we think are really important you know and um so I love what she says about that museum uh, visit that they make and something that um struck me as I was watching the film was what a joyous experience it is for them how they're laughing and smiling and um they just love walking around the museum and looking at the different specimens and the different animals many of which who are extinct and I can't help but look at that kind of extinction in light of the post-apocalyptic setting of some of the film that humans themselves have almost become extinct because of each other, that we have caused other animals to go extinct. And then we also hold within our hands the power to make the entire human race go extinct, you know, and these are the few survivors who still exist. And they are like an endangered species in a lot of ways. And they are searching for a way to continue to find food and medicine and energy and to help the race survive, you know, help it continue existing. So I love that scene in the Natural History Museum, mainly because of just the joy of it. And you're reminded that these are two people who 
don't really know each other that well, but they have found each other across time. And it is a film about connection that this is all he has to hold on to. You know, his present in the underground, in this dark hole, really. He's a prisoner. He's being experimented on. And what he holds on to is her. And I think there is something really beautiful about that, that he holds on to the love that he feels for her or the tenderness that they feel for each other. Those moments where he's with her, watching her sleep in the sun or watching her lay in bed or watching her in the Natural History Museum. It almost feels to me like he's just devouring those moments with her um, as a way to fortify himself for when he has to return to the present in the post-apocalyptic Paris underground. You know, that he's trying to savor all these moments with her so that he can continue to live and survive without her, you know. And I think that speaks to our lives as well, is that, you know, sometimes we can, we want to, we try to just have all these moments and we try to remember everything, right? Like when we're with someone and we really love them and maybe they're slipping away or maybe we know that our time with them is going to be short-lived and we just try to hold all these moments. I mean, often writing is sort of a form of trying to salvage and preserve moments and parts of your life that memory is going to forget. And um, we, we just try to save all of that, all of those memories so that we can live so that we can continue to live but at the same time those memories can be really painful when they come back to you and you can't have the life or the world that those memories were made in because that world is destroyed you know this is really about so much about a world that is gone and everything about it is gone She's gone, the cats are gone, the birds are gone, the children are gone. You know, all that survives is the people who live in this underground world. And so much has disappeared and vanished. Except for these persistent memories and this one persistent image from his childhood at Orly Airport, seeing that man killed. And that is the memory that he goes back to and that allows him to travel in time. So now he's brought back to the present and the experimenter, that's what I call him, but it's this guy that's sort of overseeing these experiments. He forces the man to go into the future. So he's gone to the past, been with that woman, And now he's going to the future. And um, so Paris is rebuilt. He asks the people for help. They give him an energy source to take back with him, back to the underground in Paris. After this, the experiments are over. He's transferred to another part of the camp. They've used his memory. You know, they've sucked him dry and gotten everything they can out of it. And so now they're done with him. And so, again, this narrative is kind of complicated. There is a lot going on here. 
the future people visit him again. Well, they visit him, you know, before he visited them. So they come and find him and they want him to join them in the future. They offer him that. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to go into the future. He wants to return to, quote, the world of his childhood, unquote. And he wants to go back to the woman who might be waiting for him. Think about this for a minute. I think this is profoundly moving, profoundly moving to me, that he is given this choice that he could go into the future and he wants to instead go into the past. That is how powerful this memory is. It's how powerful his connection to the woman is. His connection to his childhood. His sense of nostalgia. And so he's so human in that way. He's so us, I think. That he wants to go back to what he's familiar with. He wants to go back to what he knows but more than anything, he wants to go back to what he has lost, to what he thought was forever untouchable, but now he, but now it's tangible again, that he can travel in time and he can go back to live there. And so he does. He wants to return to that memory of his childhood. So he returns to Orly, to the airport, and he runs to the woman, but a man from the camp is there at the airport to kill him, and he's killed. He dies. And this is how the film ends with this quote, and it still takes my breath away. Every time I watch the film, it is exhilarating. It is the first time every time with this film. It never gets old. It never gets tired. It's never gimmicky or hollow. It's always revealing new layers and depth and dimension to it. And it has just become such a resonant film in my life. Really a touchstone for me. A touchstone of the possibilities of cinema and the power of cinema. So this is how it ends. And again, back to that literary quality of Marker. I think he was a beautiful writer. Quote, He understood there was no way to escape time, and that this moment he had been granted to watch as a child, which had never ceased to obsess him, was the moment of his own death. Unquote. It's so satisfying in a way a twist like this like everything comes together it feels so inevitable every i mean the way he plotted it the way he put it together is i think the way a writer would put together a short story or a novel is that there is just a poetic quality to it and i think we can tell that he's a writer that the way this was put together was perfect, was inevitable. The pacing was wonderful. And it just feels so brilliant. Like, you just think, oh my God. Like, I didn't see it coming when I watched the film the first time. I was blown away by this ending. I had no idea it was coming. 
And there it is. In the end, he was haunted the whole time by his own death. And he didn't know it. He thought it, he thought he was witnessing someone else's death. He was witnessing his own death. And aren't we all haunted by that moment that hasn't happened, but will happen? And we wonder when it will happen and how it will happen. Is it set before we're born? Does fate exist? I don't know. I think the film raises that is, does fate exist? That no matter what he did, he could not escape it. It's almost like his life was predestined or predetermined in that way. That everything had to fit together in a particular way. And that is how he died. And he knew from the, and he didn't know, but he saw from the beginning his own death. I mean, I don't tend to believe in fate. You know, I just believe life is like all chaos and randomness. And there's no real greater point to it or greater meaning or anybody there pulling the the levers. You know what I mean? It's just chaos and randomness, in my opinion. But I'm not religious, and some people are. And they do believe in fate, and they do believe that things are meant to happen or not meant to happen or whatever. I don't subscribe to that belief, but um, I think the film is, is raising that to some extent, that no matter what he did, this was how he was going to die. And, and he saw it, you know, he, it was a prophecy in a way. And, um, that ending just always takes my breath away. How perfect it is, how you can't imagine any other ending for this film. And the film itself almost feels like a book. And so it's no surprise that it is a book, (laughs) that there is a book version that I want to own one day with the images. And I would imagine with the text too. And so I wonder how reading it as a book is, you know, like I wonder what that experience is like opposed to a film. I mean, obviously with a physical book, you can touch the images and it's more tangible in a way that film is not as just a screen in front of you. But it's so interesting how I think in a way Marker was trying to break down those barriers between art forms that, you know, here is a film and here is a book, but he's almost trying to turn the film into a book, you know. And Chris Dark says something similar to what I'm saying in his book for, for BFI Film Classics. Let me find that quote. I wasn't like planning on using it, but as I was talking, it, I think it makes sense. Quote, he described himself as a bricoleur. I don't know how to say that word. A bricoleur or a tinkerer, extracting material from diverse sources to recombine it anew in a different medium, whether as a book, film, CD-ROM, or some subsequent digital iteration, often reconfiguring that medium in the process. With Marker, we move constantly from word to image, page to screen, 
book to film and back again, sometimes even in the same work. Images are rarely without their accompanying text or spoken commentary. The screen has the attributes of a page, and the page those of a screen. A book's a film, and a film's a book. Unquote. And I think that sums up Chris Marker, and I think that sums up La Jete, that it is breaking down barriers, it is blurring and dissolving lines between art forms, it's asking us what is possible in the medium of cinema. Um, and that is probably why it electrified me so much the first time I saw it, that I didn't know film could take on these huge subjects. I didn't know a film could be composed of still photographs. I didn't know a film could tell this story, a sci-fi post-apocalyptic story, and yet make it so human and make it so real and make it so relatable. So he's doing so much with La Jetée, you know? There's that literary quality to it. There's a romance there. There's love, there's connection. He's exploring time and memory. You know, so much is packed into that 28 minutes. And it still astonishes me, even as I'm talking about it. It still just astounds me what he was able to do in that short period of time with this story. It is, uh, I don't even know what to say. Like... I feel like I'm like out of my depth in many ways and even trying to talk about La Jete and Chris Marker. Um, it's impossible to say everything, but I hope that I have given you things to think about. I hope that I've offered some insights. I just wanted to share my own experiences with the film, the way it's impacted my life and shaped my life and changed my life forever because of the groundwork that it laid with um, getting me interested in art house cinema and sparking this part of myself that I really didn't know existed and that is continuing to really burgeon and flourish and um, that's why I love this podcast I love being able to talk about this film and um, I love being able to share my thoughts and feelings and insights and research with those of you who listen. So I hope this episode was valuable. I thought I hope it was enriching. I hope it was informative. I hope that um, it inspires you to watch the film or rewatch the film. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.